And a secret analysis by the agency you ran, the Defence Intelligence Agency, in August 2012 said, and I quote, there is the possibility of establishing a That's declared a or undeclared <laughs> Salafist, it's not secret anymore, it was released under FOI, the quote is, there is the possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria, and this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime. The US saw the ISIL caliphate coming and did nothing. Did you see this document in 2012? Was this come across your table? One of oh, your yeah, yeah, yeah. I paid very close attention okay. to all this. Okay, so when you sure saw did. this, did you not pick up a phone and saying, what on earth are sure. we doing supporting I mean, that, these Syrian that, rebels? That kind of information are... is presented, and, and what did you those, do become, those become, I argued about it. Did you say we shouldn't be supporting these groups? I did. I mean, we argued about these, the different groups that were there, and we said, you know, who is it that is involved here? And I will tell you that uh, I, I do believe uh, that the, the intelligence was very clear and now it's a, it's a matter of whether or not policy is going to be as clear and as defining and as precise as it needs to be. And I don't believe it was. But we in really, 2012, we, but in we 2012, which was three years ago, let's just be clear, just right. for the sake of our viewers. In 2012, your agency was saying, quote, the Salafists, the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda in Iraq are the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria. Mm -hmm. In 2012, the yeah. U.S. was helping coordinate arms transfers to those same groups. Why did you not stop that if you're worried about the rise of quote-unquote yeah, Islamic I, I, I mean, I hate to say it's not my job, but that, my job was to, was to ensure that the, that the accuracy of our intelligence that was being presented was, was as good as it could be. And I will tell you, it, it goes before 2012. I mean, when we, were, when we were in Iraq and we still had decisions to be made before there was a decision to pull out of Iraq in 2011. I mean, it was very clear what we, were, what we were going to face. Well, I admire your frankness very on this subject. Very clear what we were going to let face. Me, let me just, to one before we move on, just to clarify once more, you are basically saying that even in government at the time, you knew those groups were around, you saw this analysis, sure. and you were arguing against it. But who wasn't listening? I think the, I think the administration. The administration turned a blind eye to your analysis. I don't know the, if they turned a blind eye. I think it was a decision. I think it was a willful decision. A willful decision to go support an insurgency that had Salafists, Al Qaeda, well, and Muslim a willful decision to do what they're doing, which which you have to really you'd have to really ask the president, what is it that he actually is doing with the with the uh, policy that is in place because it is very very confusing. I'm sitting here today, Maddie, and I don't I can't tell you exactly what that is, and I've been at this for a long time. Our allies in the region were our largest problem in Syria. The Turks were great friends, the Saudis, the Emiratis, etc. They were so determined to take down Assad, they poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tens of thousands of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad. Except that the people who were being, who were being supplied were al-Nusra, and Al-Qaeda. We are working hand and glove with the Turks, with the Jordanians, with the Saudis, and with all the people in the region, attempting to identify the people who deserve the help. If we have to choose the lesser of evils here, the lesser evil is the Sunnis over the Shiites. It's an evil, believe me, it's terrible evil. Again, they've just taken out 1,700 former Iraqi soldiers and shot them in a field. But who are, they, who are they fighting against? They're fighting against the, against the proxy with Iran that's complicit in the murder of 160,000 people in Syria. You can just you know, do the math. And again, one side is armed with suicide bombers and rockets. The other side has access to military nuclear capabilities. 
So from Israel's perspective, um, you know, if someone's got, if, if, if there's got to be an evil that's going to prevail, you know, let, let the, the Sunni evil prevail. All right, all right. That was some of my Syria clips. Um, oh, here's another good one. With respect to Syria, it's always been a fantasy, this idea that uh, we could provide some light arms or even more sophisticated arms to what was essentially an opposition made up of former doctors, farmers, <laughs> pharmacists, and so forth, and that they were going to be able to battle not only a well-armed state, but also uh, a well-armed state backed by Russia, backed by Iran, a battle-hardened Hezbollah. Uh, th that was never in the cards. Uh, and so... All right. So anyway, the point is, yeah, high treason in Washington, D.C. for years on end now. Years on end. If you heard the show yesterday, I should have queued this up for today. I just thought of it. I forgot about it before. Maybe I'll try to see if I can do it during the commercial this time. But um, I mentioned during the, the Gareth Porter interview yesterday that I had called it on the sarin attack before it happened in 2013 just because I was paying close attention to the news. And I'd mentioned in the Syria part of my speech in San Angelo in April of 2013 at the end, I guess it was the last question was about Syria. <clears throat> and at one part I said, and if you're interested in what's Israel's position on all of this, they've made it very clear. This is, you just heard, uh, former ambassador Michael Oren explaining Netanyahu's position on it. Um, but I said, in case it's not clear, um, you know, just look in the last couple of weeks, we've had the Israelis accusing Assad of crossing the so-called red line and using chemical weapons. And John Kerry's response to them was basically, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember exactly what he said, but I'm quoting myself paraphrasing that he had told the Israelis, not yet. And that'll be in the book. We'll have the exact quote and everything once we get all that together. But anyway, uh, point being, they had already, you know, basically shown their hand that this is what they're going to do. Only Kerry had signaled publicly, publicly, why? I don't know. Had signaled publicly to the Israelis, oh, hold your horses, we're, we're not quite ready yet on this end, but we'll let you know. What? And then the next thing you know, the Turks and Al-Qaeda staged a sarin attack in eastern Damascus. Like three months later. Uh, that almost became the excuse for a big fake war for Osama. And anyway, we've seen, you know, the mythical moderates um, being completely whooped by al-Nusra in Idlib just in the past couple of days, where before they had fought together, now these guys are part of the truce, so Al-Qaeda just came for the rest, seized all their weapons, apparently, or at least quite possibly including whatever stores of American and Saudi-supplied tow missiles Straight in the hands of Al-Qaeda. Because just like in the Iraq war, where Al-Qaeda in Iraq was just the smallest part of the Sunni-based insurgency, in Syria, the mythical moderates are the smallest part. And Al-Qaeda dominates the entire thing. Like the Islamic State does in Iraq. And Irar al-Sham is nothing but another side of Al-Qaeda anyway. It was founded by Al-Qaeda leaders and... They're no break off. I don't know. I think they still follow the dictates of Ayman al-Zawahiri. 
They're just, um, you know, just like Osama recommended. We gotta change the name of this thing, man. Sarkawi gave us all such an ugly name. We need to rebrand. It worked. We'll just call them Arar al-Sham and al-Nusra. And people go, huh? I'm tired of trying to keep track of the names of these terrorist groups and not realize that what we're talking about is al-Qaeda in Syria. And the Republicans and the Democrats are in on backing them in their attempted regime change against Assad. And I know, guys, for you regular listeners, this is such broken record stuff. But, you know, yesterday I got a tweet from a guy who I believe he's told me before he's in the army or something. And... um he uh, said that he was told he's still in the military. Apparently, I don't know if he's an intelligence officer or he works with them or exactly what his role is, but an intelligence officer told him that it was a BS conspiracy theory that the U.S. is backing al-Qaeda in Syria or uh, the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. So he went and tried to teach the guy. These are intelligence officials who they don't even know this stuff. They have no idea what the hell they're doing over there. Unless they hear it from their own bosses that this is what we're doing. They don't know. For all they know, Assad did 9-11. Why not? Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Well, I was putting off telling you who was on the show today because I was hoping I was going to have somebody on the show today, but yeah, it don't look like it. I got a really late start, man, because uh, I read this new article at Tom Dispatch. We run all those as originals, so that means I gotta get that thing read in the morning. It was this really long article about how to demilitarize the military. Well, it was why we need to. Just trying to draw a portrait of just how big this thing is. And it was written by a military guy, some kind of officer, I think. Or a professor at a war college, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's a Andrew Basevichian critique of the warfare state. So, great! And then, um, once I got to, I don't know, say about 150,000 words into the article, in the second to the last paragraph, he, you know, in effect calls for one world communism and says, well, you know, the military should be turned into a nation building and peacekeeping and... Uh, disaster relief organization. God dang it, Bobby. Why do you people have to always recommend something be done? Can't you ever just knock it off and just be happy with that? How about we dissolve the military, 
and everybody who works for it has to go and get a job, just like everybody else. How about that? Nation-building, peacekeeping force. That's what we've got now. It's called a world empire. God dang it. But meanwhile, what a great article, because he goes, I mean, you know, he's, like I said, he taught us some war college or something, this guy, so he knows every major felony scandal inside the military by heart, basically, and lists a lot of them in a row, and it's a lot. What a corrupt organization that Pentagon is. A scandal a day, and those are the ones where they bother to hold themselves accountable for some reason. Like maybe a gigantic expose in the Washington Post about Walter Reed or something like that. But otherwise, they get away with it. Um, and then he also, of course, just talks about the disasters of all their losing wars and their willingness to break the law and torture people as long as Donald Rumsfeld says to? Really? Anyway, and then he talks all about, and this is something that's very interesting to me, too. I won't be running the article on antiwar.com. I won't be interviewing the guy, but uh, it's interesting to me. Is the interplay between the uh, military and the um, and the civilians. And see, I'm too binary, man. I'm not really smart enough to do this job. I mean, I'm interested in this stuff, but, you know, I look at it like, hey, the civilians are supreme, uh, or the military is. And isn't it kind of ironic when you have the military actually telling the civilians, hey, 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 easy there. You know, we kind of don't want to do this one or not as badly as you do, something like that. Like, for example, the way the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff basically told Obama, forget it, when it came to um, Syria aborted war 2013 in uh, August, September 2013. So we see some of that, right? And they're probably somewhat of a restraining influence, even as they obey orders to help the Saudis destroy Yemen all day, where it actually could be much worse than that. And, um, hang on, right, I'm not to myself here. But anyway, I like the way this guy puts it. I'm sorry, let me look this up real quick. Is that Tom Dispatch? Where'd it go? Tom Englehart. Gregory Foster is the guy's name. Gregory Foster at TomDispatch.com. And, um, <clears throat> he talks about how, um, you know, even where uh, it seems like the civilians are getting out ahead of the military and have to be, you know, restrained, that really what's going on there is uh, the military is so supreme in the first place that they create the presumption that a military option will always be the first option and no civilian ever wants to be caught the last one to say, uh, being the last one to say, hey, let's use military force to do it. And so they're, they're basically so subservient to the military in the first place, that's how sometimes it seems like they're separate from them when they push even harder than, uh, than the generals for the wars. John Kerry versus the generals on aborted Syria attack 2013 would be a great example there. And I th I think Goldberg's, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg's take in The Atlantic that makes Obama somewhat hesitant to do the damn thing him himself as well is pretty much accurate. I thought so at the time. In fact, when he punted to Congress, he said publicly, 
he said, make it a conscience vote, which means to the leadership of both parties in the Congress, because you know I'll have a Republican votes for a war. He only needs a minority of the Democrats, um, in most cases anyway. Um, but he was uh, instructing the Democratic leadership, Reed and Pelosi, to not whip their uh, members. And in the Congress, that means you have whoever's in Tom DeLay's spot now go around and bully everybody. Well, I mean, for the Democrats. Yeah, the Democrats, Tom DeLay, go around and bully their party members that you will fall in line and you will vote with the party on this one. And when they say conscience vote, that means go ahead and vote. No, it's all right. We're just kind of doing a thing here. So that, I mean, that was the headline, I think, at ABC News. President calls for conscience vote on Syria war. I mean, please vote no. Don't make me do this. And then Reed called it off. They didn't even have the vote. They just said, you know what? We're going to not do the vote instead of have Congress show up and vote no. So that was nice. And then we also learn in Jeffrey Goldberg's article, as discussed with Gareth on the show yesterday, that it wasn't just Dempsey. And Ray McGovern has really done the best to cover this. If you want to learn about this, you type in Ray McGovern, and then you type in Dempsey, and then you type in Syria, and maybe 2013 to be specific, and you'll see all about that. Well, now we learn in the Atlantic that James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, came to Obama and said that the intelligence community refuses to vouch for this intelligence. We'll give it, I mean, we don't know his exact words, whether he said, well, we'll give it medium confidence or something. But he apparently used, they claim, he used the term slam dunk and said, Mr. President, this is not a slam dunk about who's responsible for what happened here. So that's, in a sense, a threat, right? That means if you do this anyway, I might tell on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're not going to put this on me, Mr. President. And which is really funny because, as I was saying to Gareth yesterday, but it's worth repeating, Clapper was the head of the satellite agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, when they were lying us into war with Iraq in the first place. And he was the one, whenever Chalabi's guys said, yeah, you see that pile of firewood yeah that's a chemical laboratory or whatever and and he would go yeah yeah that looks right to me mr president and <laughs> this kind of crap you know hid behind uh, the lie that saddam must have shipped all his chemical weapons to syria at the last minute funny how none of them turned up after 2013 and the deal for assad to get rid of is they didn't find one that said hey we could show this to be saddam's not one hey i'll scott here if you've got a band, a business, a cause, or campaign, and you need stickers to help promote, check out TheBumperSticker.com at TheBumperSticker.com. They digitally print with solvent ink, so you get the photo quality results of digital with the strength and durability of old-style screen printing. I'm sure glad I sold TheBumperSticker.com to Rick back when. He's made a hell of a great company out of it, and there are thousands of satisfied customers who agree with me, too. Let TheBumperSticker.com help you get the word out. That's TheBumperSticker.com at TheBumperSticker.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. Are you a libertarian and or peacenik? Live in North America? If you want, you can hire me to come and give a speech to your group. I'm good on the terror war and intervention, civil liberty stuff, blaming Woodrow Wilson for everything bad in the world, Iran, central banking, political realignment, and, well, you know, everything. I can teach markets to liberals and peace to the right. Just watch me. Check out scotthorton.org slash speeches for some examples and email me, scott at scotthorton.org, for more information. See you there. Hey, cool, Steven Zunis is going to be here to talk about Hillary Clinton's coup in Honduras. Yay! That Hillary Clinton, man. Did you guys see the thing in The Onion yesterday? 
<laughs> I warn you, man. Those of you uh, who want to protect your virgin eyeballs, do not look at the onion. They have one at the onion where Hillary Clinton gets up there at one of these town halls naked in in a desperate bid at authenticity. Here I am, my frail, temporary, flawed form or whatever. <laughs> this flawed, temporary vessel of my humanity <laughs> something. Oh, and then she's disgusting. And then they got her head very poorly photoshopped on there, you know, to make it an extra little yuck. That's great. That's great. Anyways. Uh, yeah, it's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Man, I'm sorry. I totally spaced this out, and I didn't get time to read this. I didn't even have a tab open, man, or else I would have noticed it. Uh, completely uh, escaped me until just now. When I was ranting at Raven, and I mentioned Yemen, and then I thought, oh, yeah, Yemen. Somebody had sent me this. Um, uh, my friend Ivan had sent me this. Quiet support for Saudis entangles U.S. in Yemen. The first article after a year of war. The New York Times finally says, oh, yeah, um, America's been helping Saudi bomb Yemen this whole time, and they're dying, the Yemenis. Al-Qaeda's winning. And, and then, wait a minute, because didn't I read a quote from this? I hope it was this article. Now i gotta, now I got to uh, scan through it. Damn, I can't keep my sources straight no more. I just read a thing, I think it was yesterday, that really confirmed. I think it was a, I think it was a clip out of this article. Someone was quoting this article, saying that this was all about kissing the Saudis' ass over the Iran nuclear deal. That, well, we're going to have the nuclear deal. Oh, here, I'll just search the page for nuclear, won't I? Um, we're going to do the nuclear deal, and this will make the Saudis feel better. Yeah, see, there it is. Wait. Yeah, see, there you go. Two days of discussions in the West Wing followed. There was little debate. Among other reasons, the White House needed to placate the Saudis as the administration completed a nuclear deal with Iran, Saudi's arch enemy. That fact alone eclipsed concerns among many of the president's advisors that the Saudi-led offensive would be long, bloody, and indecisive. How do you like that? This was the quote. So, they told him, Obama, Mr. President, this is not going to work. Okay? We're not going to be able to help the Saudis put Hadi back on the throne there. It's going to take forever, and... It probably ain't going to work even at the end anyway. And then you got to love the New York Times language here. That fact alone eclipsed concerns, placating Saudi over the nuclear deal. Eclipsed concerns among the president's advisors that here we're starting another goddamn war, Mr. President. For what? And if we don't kiss the Saudis' ass over securing their interest with the new Iran nuclear deal, then what? They're going to do what? Huh? You know, I think Mark Mazzetti typically does a pretty good job. Eric Schmidt, I don't know. Mazzetti I have respect for because I've seen him rein in Sanger and stuff. You know. Those of us who must inflict the New York Times upon ourselves as we move through life, I mean, what are you going to do? You got to, you got to, it's in there. 
They got stuff. But so here's Iran's nuclear program goes from a non-proliferation treaty signed safeguards agreement governed and inspected civilian nuclear program verified to be operating for only peaceful purposes this whole time that was then transformed by the Obama deal into the most safeguarded and most inspected nuclear program in the history of the world under all the additional protocol and the subsidiary arrangements and agreements and every other thing. Their entire nuclear program, including things that are not even nuclear materials, like the centrifuge factories, are inspected and audited and occupied by the IAEA, basically. They have gone from a safeguarded civilian nuclear program to an extra super-duper safeguarded one. So the answer to the Saudis, if they don't like it, is, what are you talking about, man? They're, they weren't making nukes, and now they're sure as hell not making nukes. So... Whatever your complaint is, go address the brick wall over there to uh, plagiarize from South Park. So, uh, yeah, but no, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll have a war. And again, all the president's advisors say no. And here, this is one where at least many in the Pentagon don't want to do it. Remember, Mark Perry was on the show, said, man, I've been walking through the halls of the Pentagon, talking to these generals, and they're pissed off. Obama's got them fighting for Al-Qaeda. And they don't like it. They do it anyway. They click their heels like good professional protectors of freedom as they fight as Al-Qaeda and, for that matter, the Islamic State's Air Force in Yemen. Oh, well. Nobody even cares about this. And you see why. It's just the same simple partisan dynamics as always since Obama took office. Liberals don't give a damn about the wars as long as it's their guy doing it. And the conservatives, for the most part, they like war, but they don't really want to give him any credit for it. They want to say that he's weak on the military. He hasn't done enough to fight against the Islamic State and Iran, their number one enemies and everything, whatever other contradictory stuff. So they don't want to say, yeah, you know, i got to give Obama credit. He sure has murdered at least tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of Afghans, Pakistanis, Yemenis, Somalis, Libyans, Malians. Syrians and Iraqis. Man, he sure does murder people a lot. Hooray for him. Right? You're never going to hear that from the right. So the only people that care basically are the libertarians. And I will give credit. Obviously, you hear them on this show every day. The real progressives who ain't so loyal to the Democratic Party. But really, you know, this only goes for the journalists. This only goes for the people who are actually writers. Who are actually interested but as far as generally speaking, the left side of American public life, 
Meh, they don't give a shit. They don't care at all. What are they going to do? Impeach Obama? Remove him from office? Indict him and prosecute him? Sentence him? And imprison him for war crimes? Come on, that's stupid, isn't it? He's their guy. And I know power would never let that happen, but geez, I guess if the entire left side of American politics insisted, they'd have to at least consider it, wouldn't they? I don't know. They don't. So anyway, whatever. Yemen is uh, far too far away from here for you to hear the children scream when they find their mother's dead bodies. So who cares about them? Not Americans. What? Just because it's our money and our politicians and our best and brightest military heroes who are slaughtering them? You're saying that it's supposed to matter to us? I suppose somehow that makes it our business to be concerned? Well, I just think they should get over there and put that hottie back on the throne real good and get it over with and bring peace. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, kids. Welcome back to the show here. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. So last night I watched The Man Who Saved the World, except I admit I was kind of tired, so I fast-forwarded to the exciting part. But I watched, uh, well, it's a mix between documentary and movie footage. And it, it actually took place quite a, I mean, assuming that, you know, he really consulted well on, on, um, you know, the scenes of how it took place and they were more or less accurate. It was quite a bit different than I imagined. Um, oh, I'm such an idiot. I was supposed to remind myself to Google up his name so I could say it right while I'm talking to you here. Do you guys know this story? The man who saved the world. Yeah, that's past tense. You'd all been killed. Uh, all of you. And me. Uh, Stanislav Petrov. That's it. Stanislav Petrov. Uh, he was a military officer. And then there's so many different uh, near misses. This one was in 83. And what happened was, it was right after, if I remember, the, if I got the story right, it was right after the KAL shoot down, the Korean airliner um, that was shot down by the Soviets. And of course, <clears throat> I don't know, I'm sure they lie their asses off about it at the time, but it came out later that, yeah, in fact, that flight had been shadowed by an American, I forget if it was a bomber, I think it was a bomber on, you know, doing its routine flight over the Pacific, its circles, and it had 
shadowed with that plane and then broken off, but created the misimpression among the Soviets that the civilian plane was the bomber and it was still coming right at them. And they, of course, lied about this and they played a clip actually in the the documentary last night of Reagan, you know, saying this, this is a pure premeditated murder and whatever, uh, as though he didn't know that uh, it was his Air Force's fault. I don't think it was deliberate. Uh, interestingly, the head of the John Burt Society was on the plane at the time, so that made for a great conspiracy theory for the Birchers that he was set up somehow to be shot down by the Soviets. <laughs> but anyway, Larry McDonald was his name. But anyway, so this was pretty much right after that. Tensions were high, and there was, I believe it was a satellite claimed to detect five different missile launches from the west coast of the United States with its infrared sensors. And Stanislav Petrov was not even supposed to be on the job that day. Someone else was sick, and he got called in to cover for him. And... All versions of the story I've ever heard really give credit to, you know, the depth of this man's character. That, you know, he refused to, uh, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have so much self-regard like most military officers would, you know, that that was his main concern. And he just decided, I don't trust that damn computer, man. He doesn't really have the dialogue in the film that, like, why would they only launch five? I mean, you're talking about the Americans have tens of thousands of nukes at this point. Tens of thousands. If they're going to attack the Soviet Union, they're going to attack the hell out of them. They're going to try to take out everything the USSR has to prevent retaliation as best as possible. Fallout's going to be bad enough anyway, right? Um, but so why five? I guess that must have been part of his reasoning. But here was the deal. Uh, he couldn't, oh, and the other thing helping him was he couldn't get any visual confirmation from the guys looking at the satellite things. So they deserve a lot of credit too, because they were under a lot of pressure. Because think about how the incentives of bureaucracy work. The, the pressure could, I guess, could have split either way. That, you have to be right. Never mind anything else. You have to be right about what you're looking at and what it means. Right? Versus these people are demanding confirmation of a missile launch and you're holding it up. Which is a lot of pressure on a junior military person to just say, yeah, I think that might be it right there. But they held firm, too, and said, I'm sorry, I can't deny it, but I can't confirm it, man. I just don't see it. So, but then here was the thing. They had to wait until the missiles would have been far enough over the pole to be seen by radar. And this one, and he says, and he explains in the documentary part of the thing, he explains that if he had passed on the word that, yes, this is legit, fire back, they would not have overruled him. No one higher in the chain of command would have overruled him. They all would have fallen right into their place in the machine and launched the nukes. And uh, and he knew it. And he, he just, you know, you got to think about the average uh, dumbass meathead officer who could have been in charge that day 
this guy thought, you know what? If it's the wrong decision, then I am the man. Not the people who listen to me. I know they won't overrule me. I will know for an instant before I die too that I was the man who started World War III and killed everyone. And I just don't trust that damn computer. And then here was the joke too. You know, once the missiles would have come over the pole but never did and the radars could not confirm any incoming missiles because they did not exist and everybody breathed their sigh of relief they went back over the computer code and the satellite and all the hardware and all the software and everything and they could not figure out what had happened to the satellite to make it do that it never did it again they couldn't find any bug in the code anywhere so he joked that yeah it was the universe was playing a prank on us you know, testing this man. And anyway, the point of the movie really is, and I think that this is true, that the average dipshit, you know, officer grab him off this street at random and put him in this position, he would have killed us all. This guy, Petrov, was under ultimate pressure to say, Psh, man, the, the computer verifies with highest confirmation five launches. We better hit back. And he just said, nah, man, you know what? I'd rather be wrong and get nuked myself and risk not having time to retaliate. Because I guess they were saying by the time it's on the radar, we're going to have very little time before they set off, you know, before they go off and kill us. And anyway, I mean, why retaliate at that point anyway? You already lost a nuclear war. You got to kill all the civilians in the other country, too. If you're Donald Rumsfeld. But anyway... I, I probably should go back and watch the whole thing, man, but uh, because it's interesting to see the real guy. In fact, they show him on a tour of the Minuteman missile silos where the park ranger is explaining that these Minutemans have, are one megaton. One megaton. So that's 100 kilotons as opposed to uh, 10 and 15 at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And... Um, he talks about how, don't even compare him to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One of these, he says, if you take all of the explosives from all sides of the six years of World War II, including Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that is 60%, 60% of the power of one Minuteman missile, one megaton. It's a city killer. And they have them in the tens of megatons, too. Um, but it's meant for genocide. And anyway, and, and the, the nuclear plants all have such overkill. I mean, it's just unreal. And dig to the center of the earth, setting off 50 nukes in the same place over and over and over again. And it's just, well, how come the Navy gets to shoot nukes at that target, but we don't, too, cries the Air Force, cries the Missile Command Center, or whatever. So the redundancy in the attacks are just, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, and you know, I don't know, I like talking about this because I think it's, don't you think it's kind of incongruent how these bombs could literally end human civilization if not completely destroy the existence of our species entirely? ruin the entire food chain for the entire planet for 50,000 years or God knows what. I mean, we let, we human beings allow politicians, literally lawyers, 
to own thermonuclear weapons. How could that be? And particularly 25 years after the end of the Soviet Union. Oh, that's what he rants to the guy. Oh, we were never going to attack you. We only made these nukes to protect us from you. He's probably more right. The Americans were more willing to attack first than the Soviets ever were, as Margulies said on the show the other day. But still, we've got to ban these things. But, of course, uh, Mr. Peace Prize, Barack Obama's, just ordered a trillion dollars worth of new nukes and revamped and more usable nuclear weapons. You know, because money and power. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the thing here, man. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Coming up, Stephen Zunas is going to talk about Hillary's coup in Honduras. Well, her role in the coup. I shouldn't oversimplify. I'll let him do the simplifying. All right, anyway. So, uh, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, we got other things to talk about coming up, too. Uh, hey, let me tell you real quick again about uh, Grant Smith's big deal. Uh, it's the Washington Report on Middle Eastern Affairs. Wormia. The Washington Report on Middle Eastern Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. That's Grant uh, and his organization, Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. And um, dang on, uh, they're holding this big thing. At the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. this Friday with a whole mess of great speakers. Uh, Rula Jabril is going to be speaking. Gideon Levy is going to be speaking there. Jim Loeb, Justin Grant, Phil Weiss, Lawrence Wilkerson. So if you are within driving or flying distance of Washington, D.C., man, I would say go. Israel's influence, good or bad, for America. It's uh, the conference, and it starts uh, early in the morning. This Friday, March the 18th, all-day conference, Israel's influence, good or bad for America. So go to it, for God's sake, man. Okay, cool. Uh, Yeah, and then let's see. I'm just trying to decide on the order of what I feel like talking about next. I guess the business cycle thing. See, uh, you ain't got to be a mathematician to be able to figure out what happens when the government prints a bunch of money. And we all learned this when we were little kids. How come it's a crime to counterfeit? And when you learned about counterfeiting when you were a kid, didn't you wonder, well, how come I can't just make all my own money? Well, because that, that would make everybody else's money worth less. So you'd basically be stealing the value right out of their money. Why we let government do that? Hmm. Well, just worry about that some other time. Or maybe, I mean, if you're lucky, you got a lesson. Well, and there's a limit to how much money government can print, too. If they print too much, 
like what happened in Germany that one time, or whatever example, then the money loses its value. Uh, but the thing of it is, though, is it all just depends on how you look at it. The money losing its value compared to what? And sometimes you have massive inflation all the way across the board on virtually all prices, but sometimes you just have bubbles in certain markets. And so business cycle theory, uh, well, people have often asked, how come you have good times and then bad times? Well, Ludwig von Mises 100 years ago said, it's the central bank that the government's created uh, during you know the very same rise of industrial capitalism. They also created these central banks. And it's not the industrial capitalism that causes the boom and the bust. It's the central banks and the manipulation of the money. Because what happens is they print a bunch of money, they expand bank credit, and it creates bubbles in certain sectors. But then it's just like the laws of gravity. You know, you might be able to throw a baseball really high in the air, but then what happens eventually, guys? Laws kick in, prices fall back to actual demand. Or, or as, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm half illiterate on all this stuff. I just remember Peter Schiff in his great speech to the mortgage bankers in 2006 explaining the crash is always, is like a sine wave, right? And the crash is trough is as far down as the bubble was up. In other words, you better run like hell because there's a huge problem coming. That was what he said in 06. And then probably two years to the day later, the bottom fell out of the whole damn thing and uh, caused what they now call the Great Recession. And then so what they do? Let there be a recession and let all the prices reset and then build a good economy. No, they just started expanding bank credit again. QE this and QE that and the central bank buying up government debt with brand new money and uh, creating, you know, operation this, that and the other thing that they're doing to expand the money supply in the face of uh, all that deflation from their last bubble. And so what that means is new and maybe worse distortions in the same markets, which means crashes come and do. We already see, we've already seen the crash in the price of oil. And, uh, of course, China, boy, they've got their own boom bust system going on over there. Believe me, it ain't the wilds of laissez faire, free market, laissez faire, free market capitalism over there kicking their ass. It's their funny money system. And, uh, same thing here. And so, this brings me to what uh, I read in the National Review. Well, I only read a little bit of it because they put up a thing where i got to register with my email to read the National Review now. Forget it, dude. I don't like it that much. I'm not willing. But I read the important quotes out of it because it was uh, block quoted at length in the Daily Caller and other places where Kevin Williamson at the National Review says, basically all of Trump's voters are a bunch of bums. A bunch of white trash welfare bums who beat their kids and eat oxycotton and are worthless, shiftless losers who just want something free. And what they ought to do is move and get a job, scumbags. And what I thought was funny about that, I mean, obviously there are 
some kernels of truth in that or something, right? But if anybody other than Kevin Williamson at the National Review wrote that, think of what the National Review would say, you know? Um, but then the other thing is uh, that this is their election strategy, right? This is um, – it was character – I'm trying to remember who was it that the first thing I read about this said this is just full-blown panic by the establishment, that this is what they're reduced to is just trying to insult – the Republican rank and file into not being Trump supporters anymore. Cause, well, they tried foisting Rubio on them and that didn't work. And so they're now, they're all out of ideas, man. They're, and, uh, the thing of it is that the reason, I mean, how many towns do we have in America? You know, cities and towns. 175,000 or something. There's got to be 50,000 just in Texas. So I'm just estimating. I have no basis for estimating, but maybe there's not 50,000 in Texas. 10,000? There's a lot of towns. And a lot of them, you know what? Maybe they are just one, one horse towns, one trick pony type towns where, well, they had a good industry and, uh, they wore it out. Prices fell. Not worthwhile anymore. Um, it is what it is. And so maybe they do need to move on. But uh, mostly what's going on here is that we live in a mixed economy. This is when you're being nice. You call it a mixed economy. Well, you see, it's a quasi-free market economy full of public-private partnerships. And, well, as Robert Higgs says, it's a participatory fascism. And our markets aren't free, and our prices are not determined certainly not solely determined by consumers in the marketplace. Prices are manipulated and fixed and rigged. And what that means is that you're standing on every, it's like everybody lives in LA. The whole country lives in LA. We're all standing in an earthquake zone in Santa Monica. We don't know, you know, at what time the whole rug might get pulled out from under us again, but that's how they do it. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't make that much, and the wars just keep on and keep on, so I'm in in a, a boom-bust-proof business to a degree here. But, uh, you know, I see everybody I know who's got a real-ass job uh, or is trying to run their own real small company or whatever in real life. That boom in that bus, it gets them, man. It hurts so bad. And... It's because of the central bank, and it's been a proven fact for a 100 years. So go read Mises.org, for Christ's sake. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all, welcome back. Well, I think Steven Zunis is going to call in in a minute. That's kind of inconvenient because I can't really see the phone from here. I might hear it. It makes a little bit of a sound. If I don't space out. All right, y'all. Yeah, so it's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Um, yeah, see, it's inconvenient 
when guests insist on calling in when they don't know what the clock is around here or what. But whatever, it'll be all right. Uh, the U.S. role in the Honduran coup. Very important. Boy, is uh, Hillary just getting away with murder in the debates on foreign policy, huh? And it's all Sanders' is his fault because he could just destroy her, dude. Oh, my God, think how easy it would be. Say, Mr. Moderator, this is going to take a minute. But let's talk about how Hillary's war in country X led to the crisis in country Y and Z now. And I, I use the variables because you can plug different answers in there, you know, if you want to talk about Afghanistan or if you want to talk about Libya or Syria. Uh, Yemen, the crisis in Yemen. And there's got to be a zippy way to say, yeah, Hillary overthrew the government there and it led to a massive war that's now the worst humanitarian crisis on the face of the earth. And watch her refuse to accept any responsibility for it. Go ahead, Hillary. Tell them about the great Democratic election you threw with one man's name on the ballot. You piece of trash. Go ahead. Tell them. But Sanders won't say that because I don't know why. He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman who would like to turn this country over and, and, and Yemen and everybody else to her tender mercies. And if you listen to her say, I'm the most qualified to be the commander in chief. She loves that title, man. She is no different than George W. Bush. Who, me? I'm a war president. Just like I told you he would be two years before he was elected. I said he will be a war president. I did. Um, boy, oh boy. So, and you know what? The same guy that told me that his military intelligence colleagues um, hadn't heard that America's back in Al-Qaeda in uh, Syria. Oh, man, I'm off on too many tangents. Lost my train of thought. What was the joke I was going to say? Oh, it doesn't matter. What was it, man? Yeah. Too many steps removed from what the hell I was supposed to be talking about. So my brain shut down. Oh. Uh, did it have something to do with uh, this? No. This was a different tangent I almost went down but forgot. So I'll go back to this one then. Clinton defends ongoing anarchy in Libya. We are still in Korea. We are still in Germany. That one's from a couple of weeks ago. And then check out this one, dude. I mean, really, what she's saying here is we have to invade Libya and occupy it and build an army and create a government and stay there forever. North Africa forever. And then here, she's interviewed and, you know... Hillary Clinton defended on Monday her push for regime change in Libya, telling Chris Matthews the U.S. didn't lose a single person in the North African country. Uh, really? Well, that's how it was supposed to be, right? Another one of them uh, push-button, bloodless wars that Max Boot hates so much. Max Boot, of course, has written in commentary her current position, invade and occupy forever, more sooner. But uh, she, you know, basically sold this to the president and to everybody as all we got to do is fly planes from so high that they can't do anything about it. 
as Obama said, take out all their air defense with cruise missiles. And then we got free rain over their skies, so they can't possibly shoot us down. So it'll be perfect for all the cruise missile liberals. But, oops, she forgot about that gigantic CIA gun-running operation for Al-Qaeda in Benghazi for the war in Syria. The rat line of Al-Qaeda in Iraq veterans to go from one war to the next that blew up in her face and murdered her guy, her ambassador, and uh, what his deputy and two CIA, or what, a CIA and two mercs or whatever it was, I forgot exactly. Anyway, uh, and you know, it's unfortunate that, it, you know, maybe it changes the discussion of the Libya war back to just Benghazi. But nah, I don't know, man. Cause it's a pretty bad screw up to pretend those four guys didn't die, especially after all the hullabaloo about it and everything, you know? Um, and it raises these questions of, uh, you know, more and more details are coming out. A year ago, it was the Washington Times in their four part series by, um, Kelly Riddell and Jeffrey. Jeffrey. I'm sorry, I forget. Jeffrey something and Kelly Riddell. Oh, Jeff, Jeffrey Shapiro. Jeffrey Shapiro and Kelly Riddell. Uh, did a four-part series in the Washington Times. And in fact, if you put in my name, Scott Horton, and four-part series, you'll find a blog entry that I did at my site, Stress, where I have links to the printer-only versions, which, trust me, the Washington Times website is a disaster. But um, if you go to the printer-only version, it ain't so bad. They actually have a pretty clean one. So um, just type in my name and Washington Times series Libya, you know, something like that. And, and you'll get all those. And that's about how the CIA and the DIA warned her that there were al-Qaeda guys among the opposition and we're going to be fighting for them. And they warned her that it's not true that Gaddafi is going to kill every man, woman, and child in Benghazi. He never even said that. He didn't have the capability or the intention to do that. And the cost of spelly for the war is, in fact, false. And uh, it, they also explain in depth how the CIA, the military, and Dennis Kucinich, the heroic Democratic peacenik congressman from, well, he ain't heroic on domestic issues necessarily, but he is on foreign policy. And and he actually tried to intervene there and negotiate with Saif Gaddafi, uh, Momar's son, and they were going to kick him upstairs and hold elections and do all these reforms. And after all, Bush Jr. in 2003 had brought Gaddafi in from the cold and shook his hand and said, now give me the rusty old junk centrifuges you bought from AQ Khan's garage sale, and we'll pretend that you did it because I scared you by attacking Saddam. And then you can be friends again. What the hell lesson is that? North Korea gets nukes, we leave them alone. Iran, at least for years and years, throw their hands up. We're not even making nukes, and we threaten to bomb them even still, really. Saddam had squat. He had less capability than any of them, was under permanent uh, no-fly zone dominance by his enemies. He got invaded. Gaddafi gives up his centrifuges, and then within a decade is stabbed in the back. I mean, literally stabbed in the ass and shot in the back of the head on the side of the road. 
We came, we saw, he died. Hey, there's a Trump uh, campaign commercial for you. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. On the line, I've got Stephen Zunis, Dr. Stephen Zunis, professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco. And he's got this very important article here, the U.S. role in the Honduras coup and subsequent violence. It's in the National Catholic Reporter at NCR Online, ncronline. Org. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. How are you? Good to be with you again. Greetings from New Zealand. Uh, oh, wow. New Zealand, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good times. Yeah, yeah pro- you do get around, uh, don't you? Yeah, I'm a visiting professor this year at the National Center of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Otago. Wow. So I'm down in the city of Dunedin uh, on the uh, South Island, and it's uh, just before dawn uh, here uh, tomorrow. Your time. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate that, especially uh, at a off time like that, so early in the morning. But, all right. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate that. Now, uh, so I know you have limited time, busy morning over there, so uh, tomorrow. So um, tell us quickly, you got 10 minutes. What exactly was, as best you could tell, uh, was America, <clears throat> Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's role in the coup d'etat? Before, after the fact, accessory, however you want to describe it sure. or whatever you yeah. want. Manuel yeah. Zelaya, the coup of Manuel Zelaya in 2009 in Honduras. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Manuel Zelaya was a democratically elected uh, uh, president um, who came from a kind of establishment uh, mainstream uh, party. He was from a wealthy landowning family, but he recognized how desperately the country was needed of uh, in reforms. And uh, he, he built new schools, helped public transportation, got... Uh, you know, uh, uh, free and discounted school lunches and milk for young children, pensions for the elderly, um, you know, scholarship for students, raise the minimum wage, you know, things, things like that that make Washington kind of nervous. Uh, <laughs> a place we were had a lot of foreign investment and the like. Uh, there is a there is a coup uh, by these well, wait uh, military a minute, though, officers. Ner- I'm sorry to interrupt, but when you say nervous, I mean I think you mean not just that they want that money, but that they're afraid he's going to start nationalizing foreign-owned yeah. property, right? But yeah. did they have any reason to fear that, really? No, no, not really. Just because I mean, he's yeah, buying guy, school lunches cap- and stuff? Yeah, the guy was a capitalist, but you know, he believed uh, that you know, when you had gross inequality, you know, the government could, should play at least a little, some role in, in helping out the inequities and, and uh, uh, you know, making the market work a little better if you don't have a, you know, a bunch of foreign uh, companies running everything, hiring small business people and the like. Um, uh, but, and, and there's no, and the person who led the, led the coup was a graduate of the School of the Americas, you know, the notorious, um, training center, uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia, where we, you know, brought in a whole bunch of, uh, officers who later ended up uh, staging military coups. 
Now, I found no evidence that the United States itself was responsible for the coup itself. But what was really important was what happened immediately afterwards. The Organization of American States, I mean, all these Latin American countries, you know, said, hey, this is illegitimate. You know, let's not go back to the bad old days of military coups. Uh, let's... Uh, we don't recognize this uh, uh, new government. Zelaya needs to come back and complete his term. If you don't like him, the people can vote him out, but don't force him out, you know, through 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 force. And that's when Hillary Clinton came in and said, "Oh, not so not so fast. Let's just negotiate some kind of compromise here. You know, you know, let let, let you know, let, let's not have Zelaya come back. Let's let these guys rule for a while. Let's have some elections under their military rule. Uh, and um, let, let's let's put the stuff of, of um, uh, but let's let's just, let's just keep let's keep Zelaya out of power and let's 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 let the new guys kind of set the direction uh, for Honduras. And that's what has happened." And there have been thousands and thousands of people killed, trade unionists, indigenous rights activists, environmentalists, uh, uh, un uh, you know, uh, human rights lawyers. I mean, you, know, you, you name it. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, this brave and outspoken indigenous Honduran environmental activist who uh, named uh, uh, um, uh, Berta uh, uh, Caceres, uh, who'd won the Goldman Environmental Prize. Uh, she was, uh, you know, really an amazing woman. She was gunned down uh, in her hometown. Again, she's just one of thousands of people, including opposition political candidates, you know, have been murdered since this coup. And in Hillary Clinton's autobiography, she bragged about her her role uh, in, uh, in, in, in stopping, uh, Zelaya's return and restoring stability, uh, to the country. Interestingly enough, she dropped it from the paperback edition. Uh, really? Uh, yes. Uh, when, 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 uh, some of her critics started, uh, you know, uh, using this, uh, against her. Uh, but it's in the original hardback, uh, hard choices. And some of these emails that have recently come out, uh, they have her, uh, working with this, uh, um, this guy who, um, uh, 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 oh, what's his name? Lanny. Lanny um, Davis. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, Lanny Davis. Because at the time, eight, at the time, yeah, I remember Obama had said, you know, we don't really like coup d'etats or something. And then Hillary came out and said, yeah, we do. Coup d'etats are wonderful. I'm paraphrasing. And then it became, it came right out immediately that her buddy Lanny Davis, who was one of her flax going back to the nineties, was, uh, you know, I guess own the PR firm or something like that was very close to the guys who had done the coup in a financial yeah, he, 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 connection. He was, he was working for the uh, Honduran chapter, the Business Council of Latin America, you know, which would which support the coup. And it was through him she opened communication with uh, Micheletti, who was the interim uh, ruler installed by the military that everybody else was refusing to talk to directly because he was a, uh, um, uh, you know, he, he, uh, it seized power illegally, and you know basically, uh, um, uh, you know basically they, they they strategize a way to you know, restore order and would and in her words render the question of Zelaya moot, as in uh, let's make sure this democratically elected president uh, not get back in into in power. And this was when you had tens of thousands of Hondurans on the streets peacefully protesting for his return, who are being gunned down and beaten and suppressed. You know, by this, uh, uh, you know, by by this junta, uh, and it, it's really revealing because you know, you and I have talked a lot about her 
her role in the Middle East and supporting various tyrants and occupying armies and things like that. But it's not just the Middle East. We're seeing how she's doing it in Latin America as well. Hmm. Well, you know, I actually don't remember specifically, Stephen, but I'd be willing to bet that you and I talked about this at the time. I've certainly uh, yeah, interviewed I, I, people I, 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 ever since then about it from time to time. Yeah, we didn't quite know as, as full. I mean, we, I, think, I think both of us suspected, uh, you know, the, that, uh, that that Hillary was doing something because it was interesting. The White House statements were were far more equivocal in their condemnation of the coup, but the State Department, which was really doing the stuff behind the scenes under Clinton, you know, they were, uh, you know, you know, they they were being. Uh, uh, um, well, Obama's willing to call it a coup. Uh, the State Department refused to do so, mm-hmm. and we're getting a lot more mixed signals from the State Department. But you know, since that time, you know, again, the, the, the emails or autobiography, uh, at least the first edition, and other things, you know, have, have made it very clear she played a major role in um, in, in preventing the return of, of democratic uh, governance. And we've and seen the, the, the horrible things that have happened. It has become the literally the murder capital of the world. More people killed per capita. Uh, and, and again, the, the targets are, are like the, the cream of the crop, the very people, the civil society leaders, you know, the folks who are really working to support the poor, support the environment, support indigenous rights, support human rights, to support, you know, the opposition parties. You know, these are the people who are being killed at, at record numbers. And this kind of reminds us of 19, the battle days in the 1980s in places like El Salvador and Guatemala. Well, I'm sorry, right we only got one minute. But so, yeah, no, back to the refugees where we had all the child refugees. Imagine what what it would take for you to send your minor child, not just a, like a teenager, but a child alone across Mexico to try to get to America. How desperate you would have to be. To be in that situation that you would do that. And then, as you say, Hillary supported is on the record. And you have the link in your article here to the proof of her supporting sending those kids back to the murder state that she had helped to create there. It's really it's such a scandal. And Sanders refusal to hit her on this, especially in the debate the other night when they were talking about Latin American coups is unforgivable, by the way. But anyway, we're out of time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Come back on the show, Steve. Appreciate it. Sure thing. All right, y'all, that is Steven Zunis, and oops. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson, Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all. Well, some technical difficulty there. Uh, Okay, I'll take responsibility for it. But I I should probably try to blame someone else like AT&T. Yeah, they suck. Nah, it's really my fault. Anyway, uh, yeah, man, so welcome back to the show if anybody's still listening after that screw-up. But I just want to say that um, uh, when I was talking about Libya there earlier, I got diverted off into what a great job Jeffrey Scott Shapiro and Kelly Riddell did in their series in the Washington Times about the D- Libya war disaster that I neglected to mention um, what had happened in the uh, in the New York Times had done how they did this series just last week with uh, that which Bernie Sanders men- mentioned in the debate, I think the most recent debate. 
about what a disaster that war was. And uh, it, it really is amazing. It really is uh, no different than the Iraq War, I guess, uh, when you look at the complete lack of accountability for that war and everybody who was for it. You know, the media, they always go along with it, so they don't hold anybody to account. I guess the closest you can get would be a hypocrite like Chris Matthews, who just is willing to pretend and hope everyone else will forget, you know, his role in lying us into it, which I only assume. I actually don't remember that, but I'm sure he was as bad on as everybody, accepting every fake premise about what must be done, just like always. Um, but as long as everyone in major media goes along with it, then they're all the very same ones who refuse to demand accountability for the actual politicians who perpetrated it. In this case, specifically Hillary Clinton and Marco Rubio, who should be absolutely hung out to dry over this issue. Um, and yet they just get away with it scot-free. And like I ruined the end of, um... Zunis's uh, interview complaining Bernie Sanders is the number one reason why she's getting away with it. If he would make it a political issue, then it would be a political issue. Jeez, guys, do you think that Bernie Sanders' attacks against Hillary Clinton for the war in Libya are having some effect on the poll numbers? I think they might be ever since he made that the spotlight of his campaign. And then it's still the horse race, but now they're talking about the war in Libya. He knows that, but he won't do it, because he, he knows that he's basically just here to keep the left in the Democratic Party and endorse her. Because you got to stop Trump, so everybody rally behind Hillary. Who couldn't possibly stop Trump? Who's got the highest negative approval, uh, negative approval ratings? The highest disapproval ratings in the country besides Trump. And so he can probably turn that around because she's guilty for destroying the entire Middle East. You know, she can easily be portrayed by me or Trump or anyone else as the single worst aider and abetter of Bush, Cheney, and Barack Obama in their total destruction of that region. You know, she wasn't happy in helping Bush destroy it. She had to force Obama to double and triple it. In North Africa and in Syria. Leading directly to the rise of the Islamic State. As you heard the head of the DIA admit at the top of this show today. In fact, you know, they say Trump's talking to Flynn. So he's already, I told y'all, he only used it one time. He mentioned it one time. Obama and Hillary created ISIS. And that was when Hillary said, well, I'm just not going to respond to things that Trump says anymore. Mm-hmm. How long is that going to last? He's already proved he's willing to bring it up. And he's right. You know, it's true. It's really, really true. You know? I mean, because, in fact, think of this, too. And, and, and I always leave this out when I'm talking, but I think about it later. Remember the election of 2010 in Iraq when Maliki lost... And, um, uh, good old Iyad Alawi won. The former Saddam Hussein CIA sock puppet, um, pretend prime minister for the first year from what, 04 to 05, right? After Bremer left, he handed over to Iyad Alawi. Well, Alawi was the Shiite, yet Baathist, 
who had the most friendships and and professional and political relationships with the leaders of the Sunni communities. I don't know specifically, but that's what they say about him. Not just the Sunni members of parliament, but actual humans out there in the world. And he won. His his party won the plurality and had the right to try to create the first government. You know, it's a prime minister uh, parliamentary system. And he had the right to create the first government, and Maliki didn't want to give it to him. And guess who sided with Maliki? The Dawa Party, Iranian sock puppet. That's right, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. There's a whole huge story right there about how if Alawi had been able to form the government there and Maliki had been pushed out, that he might, that he at least would have had a lot better reason to try to create the coalition government, you know, and empower the Sunnis, give them enough of the spoils that they won't feel so desperate that they're forced right in the arms of the Islamic State. Would have been a chance anyway, right? Would have been, would have been better than leaving it in Maliki's hands, almost 100% guaranteed. And um, so anyway, I mean, you know, now Maliki's gone, but they, he's not replaced by Alawi. He's replaced by another Dawa Party guy, a body, who's just another same old thing, just like Jafari before Maliki. So anyway, because that was the results of George Bush's war for Iran, because he's stupid, because because Richard Pearl is stupid. Let's. Let's not get it mixed up. It was a premeditated murder plot for a really mixed up, confused, retarded motive by a bunch of idiots. They thought they were committing treason for Israel, but actually they were committing treason against Israel. Ha ha. Well, screw you and Israel, Richard Pearl. That's my take on it. Sorry about the Iraqis, you know. It's not like I supported it or anything. But yeah, man. So. And then here's what I want to do, too. I want to make fun of uh, people who support Donald Trump. Well, let me just ask you something for you to ask yourself. Why do you need to believe so badly in something or someone? Can't you just say, you know what? I don't know if there's a whatever afterlife. Or can't you just say... You know what? We just don't have a candidate who's not a devil running for office this year. We're stuck. That's because this isn't a democracy. This is an evil world empire. The most corrupt regime on the planet. The most murderous regime on the planet. And Donald Trump is bad on everything. He supported the war on Iraq. He demanded war on Libya in 2011. And he promises now to reinvade Iraq with 30,000 troops. His chief advisor is Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, who lied you into war with Iraq in 2003. 